where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager. As always, as sometimes, no guest today. It'll just be me prattling on about a number of things that caught my interest this week and I thought might catch yours as well. First two stories deal with snorting. Snorting kits were going to be distributed by Multnomah County in Portland. Not anymore. Also, cocaine snorting. Cocaine that could have been snorted had it not been found by the Secret Service in the White House. Last weekend, I have some thoughts just concluded investigation by the Secret Service. And we're going to talk about how we're naming heat waves now. I think that's kind of the natural evolution of weather and kind of the takeover of weather by people who want to be very alarmist about climate change. And a really hilarious story, honestly, the most funny news story I have seen in a long time about the theft of a a PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, van or truck in Portland recently. Have that to wrap things up. Stay tuned for that because you're not going to want to miss that story if you need a laugh right now. Okay, so snorting kits. I had never heard the term snorting kits before Multnomah County made news by last Friday announcing that it would distribute snorting kits to fentanyl users in Multnomah County. Multnomah County, of course, includes almost all of Portland. The stated reason for the distribution was that it was part of the county's harm reduction approach to the drug crisis in the Portland area and elsewhere in Oregon which is to say they give them stuff to help them use their drugs more or more safely than they otherwise would. By they, I mean people addicted to these drugs, and it's supposed to help them in that way. This is the kind of thing that Multnomah County and Portland and Oregon have been focused on for a long time in terms of focusing on harm reduction, giving out needles, etc. In fact, apparently the Multnomah County snorting kit program was instituted in part because not enough fentanyl addicts were injecting anymore. More of them were snorting it or I think smoking it. I don't know. Maybe just snorting the syringe. uh, The needle program didn't have much demand. So they had a bunch of money left over. So they said, well, if they're snorting rather than injecting, let's give them snorting kits. This is the kind of thing that has been made Portland famous, quite honestly. You know, it's of a line of decriminalizing hard drugs. It is consistent with the philosophy that, you know, we ought to make it not entirely difficult to do these drugs and then deal with the consequences afterwards. And we're seeing what those consequences are. The thing that's different about this Multnomah County proposal for the snorting kits was the pushback and the fact that they they almost immediately walked it back. That is what I want to focus on because we've we've seen harm reduction approaches like this ad nauseum in Oregon in recent years. It's part of what helped get us into the crisis we're in in terms of addiction, overdose deaths, and just this really awful situation that we have in this state right now. 
but the fact that there was so much blowback to what Multnomah County was was planning is really remarkable, and it shows the degree to which the politics of drugs have changed in Oregon, and specifically even in Portland, gives some hope to some further changes for drug policy that would bring Oregon more in line with a realistic approach to those issues than what it's had in the past and what has delivered our current situation. As I mentioned, Multnomah County announced that it was going to give out the drug paraphernalia last Friday, a week ago from when I'm recording now. I'm recording on July 14th. Happy Bastille Day for those who celebrate. Multnomah County announces this thing a week ago. There's tons of blowback. There's national coverage of it. Fox News covered it. You know, it's one of those things that I think people outside of Oregon and many of us inside of Oregon see a story and it's like, oh, come on, really? This is what we're doing. A bunch of city commissioners from Portland opposed it, came out in opposition to it almost right away. Mayor Ted Wheeler came out against it almost right away. And then this past week, there was a Multnomah County commissioner meeting when the chair of the commission, Jessica Vega Peterson, kind of got the, the whole program hung around her neck. And the other two commissioners went after her pretty strongly. Commissioner, I'll read to you a little piece of this coin KLIN story from this week. Commissioners Julia Brim Edwards and Dr. Sharon Miran told Coin 6 News that they are strongly opposed to Peterson's plan. Mirren said during the session that the county lacks an overall plan for the fentanyl addiction crisis and that Peterson should take blame. Quote, when there was a was pushback, some calling out by public, I was concerned that you would put the blame on the health department you are in charge of, Mirren said. You knew about this back in early May, yet when things turned around... You could have talked with us about this in May or June. I don't think blaming the health department is the healthy way to lead. Presumably, no pun intended. Here's what's remarkable about this is a policy that would have been just kind of second nature for Multnomah County a year or two ago got just blasted. And not only by people like me and other people that kind of have long had underlying disagreements with Oregon's drug policy and harm reduction as the core tenant of those policies, but by Peterson's co-commissioners on the Multnomah County Commission. These folks are all Democrats, of course, but you can see that there is this backlash that's occurring. And the reason why Peterson changed course, at least for now, and Multnomah County changed course, at least for now, is because they're scared it's because they're getting dragged in public about this decision just because it's so obviously dumb and out of step with where Oregon is right now and where Oregon voters are right now, that they're scared. And that shows how things have turned around, at least in public perception in Oregon and, again, even in Portland. It's a good, if you believe, as I do, that the Drug crisis is something that needs to be fixed desperately. And if you believe that the way Oregon has been addressing the drug crisis, which is in large measure via harm reduction measures like this, then this is development to be celebrated. Kind of broadening out from, from this issue, 
the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, measure 110 is, which is the uh, hard drug decriminalization measure, of course, is just vulnerable as all get out. The legislature just adjourned without making any real changes to the decriminalization portion of Measure 110. Polling shows that Oregonians strongly support, by big numbers, the repeal of Measure 110's decriminalization, and the legislature chose not to do anything in line with that. I think what this shows is that even in Multnomah County, the most liberal, populous part of the state, voters and even elected officials are willing to take a stand to change the approach that that the state has had to hard drugs. I think that a ballot measure to repeal the decriminalization of Measure 110 would have massive voter support right now. And it's just a matter of who's going to do that. It wouldn't surprise me a bit, to be honest with you, if someone made a made a really hard run at that with credible fundraising and started gathering signatures. And if it looked likely to get on the ballot or once it got on the ballot, that the legislature decides to reconvene and make some real serious changes to it. Anyway, they they know, they have to know now that they're out on a limb on that issue. If an organized effort were underway to get 110 back on the ballot or a repeal of the decriminalization portion of it, folks are going to be scared. Legislators are going to be scared of not having done anything about it. And I think you'd see some movement from folks in Salem in response to that. That may be the only thing that gets them to move at this point. Furthermore, if they don't take action, then you've got the the ballot measure going. And I, I think that there's widespread enough displeasure with Measure 110, the, the fundraising dynamic would be much different this time. I don't know that you're going to have the same out-of-state big money coming in to defend 110. You might. You would probably would have some of it. But I, I think that for a lot of those folks that, you know, Zuckerberg, et cetera, who helped fund Measure 110 to begin with, you're kind of hanging your hat if, you're, if you support decriminalization generally, Oregon does not look like the best place to hang your hat at this point, just because Measure 110 is so clearly failed here. I think the dynamics would be much different. I'm, I'm hopeful that someone, someones, will start moving toward a ballot initiative. I did see something in the press recently about how Max Williams, former state legislator, former head of the prisons, I believe, in the state, is having conversations with people about a potential ballot measure. I think as soon as something gets critical mass, it's going to take off. I think that the dynamics are, are definitely in place to have that, have that go and go quickly and go successfully. Okay. More snorting white house cocaine kind of venturing far afield from my usual. I'm sure you heard that, the Secret Service found a baggie of cocaine in the White House. I think it was on July 2nd in what they said was kind of one of their normal sweeps they do through the you know, the White House. There was conflicting reports about where in the White House it was. The White House was very clearly trying to make it 
seemed like it was from the most heavily trafficked or traveled portion of the White House possible because the subtext for all of this was that, well, you know, Hunter Biden spends a lot of time in the White House. At times he lives there, apparently. And, you know, he's a admitted, hopefully former cocaine addict. And boy, you know, that's kind of a weird coincidence. The Secret Service begins an investigation into that, the cocaine, and then it does a pretty rapid one. And then, of course, yesterday uh, came out and said, oh, shoot, you know, we weren't able to find out what the source of the cocaine was. So we're closing our investigation. A lot of skepticism about that failure and about the investigation. But I want to talk about kind of a, a maybe a more subtle part of it. I don't know that folks have really focused on, and that is what the Secret Service's role is. It's not the FBI. It's not a general, you know, criminal investigatory body. It exists for two reasons. One is to protect people and high-ranking folks in the executive branch, including Joe Biden, the president, and his immediate family. Uh, that would include Hunter Biden, especially if and when Hunter Biden is in the White House, which he is commonly and then the, the second is investigating counterfeit operations, so people that are counterfeiting or making counterfeit money. Obviously, the part of it that's pertinent here is the protection of these executive branch folks. And so in the, in the statement that the Secret Service issued yesterday, in which they said they were closing the, closing the investigation, there was some interesting stuff in there about what they did and also what they didn't do as part of that investigation. What they did is they sent the what turned out to be cocaine off to the FBI lab, uh, and the FBI lab first determined that it wasn't anthrax or any biological or chemical agent or anything else that could be you know, a threat to the White House and folks in the White House. And then they confirmed that it was, in fact, cocaine. The Secret Service said that they that they reviewed some video footage from the area of the White House to try to see who could have maybe left the cocaine in the White House and narrowed it down to a few hundred folks that it could have been. And then also that the FBI lab was unable to turn up any fingerprints or usable DNA from the cocaine or the packaging, the bag that it was in. Ultimately, the Secret Service reached the conclusion, oh shoot, without any physical evidence, we can't do anything else about this. We can't narrow down the list of people that it could possibly be or identify a sub- suspect, so we're done. Obviously, quick turnaround on an investigation like that. Obviously, also not the type of investigation that indicates that the investigating agency was terribly committed to finding who may have left the cocaine you know, did they interview, you know, there's not only physical evidence. So if there was no physical evidence from the bag or the cocaine that helped them narrow it down, did they talk to people? Did they interview folks that were in the area that could have potentially narrowed it down? Did they talk to other people who work in the White House to try to try to get some more information? It's, they don't say they do that. They did that in the statement and they do narrowly say that the reason that they're closing the investigation is that they lack physical evidence to help narrow it down. So that would imply, at least to me, that they haven't done a lot of investigation outside of trying to turn up physical evidence via the FBI lab. 
you know, all of it makes sense to a degree. And you don't even need to believe that the Secret Service did something improper. And I'm not saying they did or they didn't. But the Secret Service, remember, their purpose is to protect the first family. It's not to figure out who left cocaine in the White House. It is to make sure that whoever left the cocaine in the White House, that that wasn't you know, part of some scheme to harm the first family. The Secret Service, just once they figure out that it's not a direct threat to the first family, if you compare that fact pattern to their statutory mission, you know, they're kind of done. They're really going to be done, you can imagine, if the potential person who left the cocaine or to whom the cocaine belonged is someone they protect. Obviously, that's what everyone wonders is, was this Hunter Biden's cocaine? You can imagine how the duty of the Secret Service, the purpose of the Secret Service to protect Hunter Biden and his dad and everyone else in the immediate family would conflict with even a suspicion that it might have been Hunter Biden's cocaine. And so I think that that dynamic with the investigation uh, being performed by the Secret Service, which really isn't, it doesn't have that type of investigation in its mission, and the, the, the results of which, the results of a thorough investigation, could end up putting them quite sideways with someone whom they are duty-bound to protect, that's kind of an inadequate outcome, it would seem to me. If we want to find out who whose cocaine it actually was, which seems like something that we would want to know, because I don't think it's every day that someone leaves cocaine in the White House. It is an illegal substance under federal law. Um, it's, you know, decriminalized here in Oregon, but that this didn't happen in Oregon. And, you know, I guess you'd like to think that we'd be on top of illicit drugs being left in the White House. You can tell that, you know, the White House and the Secret Service, they were really hoping and are really hoping that this announcement yesterday of the closure of the investigation would put everything to rest. If you listen to Press Secretary Jean-Pierre's press conference from last week when she got asked about this, she kept referring to the Secret Service. You know, they're looking into this. I'm confident that they're going to get to the bottom of this. And just referring everything to the Secret Service, that's an easy out for the White House, especially if they believe that the Secret Service is going to do what honestly is kind of in line with what their mission is, which is to protect people in the White House. And that's not to say they wouldn't also have the legal obligation to you know, report a federal crime, and they are allowed to and can make arrests if they believe that federal law has been violated. But think about in all the history of all the scandals of involving U.S. presidents since the Secret Service came into being at the beginning of the 20th century, how many of those were from leaks from Secret Service agents? I'm having a hard time thinking of any, to be honest with you. And think about their opportunity to know what presidents and vice presidents and their families are up to. They're with them a lot. So of all the people in the world, they are probably best situated to dish the dirt on these folks, and you just don't see it. My belief is that that's in part because there's a strong institutional bias within the Secret Service to 
you know, defend their protectees, not to get sideways with their protectees, to have their protectees trust them so that they don't mind them being around to keep them safe, all of which makes sense. But it also goes to the point that I'm trying to make, which is that the Secret Service just institutionally was poorly suited to conduct uh, this investigation. And the fact that they they threw their hands up and said, well, we just don't know whose cocaine it was, doesn't mean a whole lot, or it shouldn't mean a whole lot. And there's folks that certainly want it to be the end of the story. It shouldn't be, in part because it, it was conducted by the Secret Service, and this isn't what they do. All right, so done with snorting. Those are our two snorting stories. Now on to heat waves. The uh, <laughs> Read to you a New York Times, the beginning of a New York Times story from today. A heat wave engulfing Southern Europe is expected to send temperatures close to record highs in some areas, prompting officials in Italy, Greece, Spain, and elsewhere to impose measures to protect residents and tourists from the scorching conditions. The latest round of high temperatures, frequently referred to as Cerberus, after the multi-headed dog that guards the underworld in Greek mythology, has sent thermometers soaring above 98 degrees Fahrenheit in the past few days. So obviously the thing that caught my attention first is that I, I don't think I've come across people naming heat waves before all the heat we had here in Oregon and I think it was 2021, they called that the heat dome, but it wasn't really a name. And then to name it after the multi-headed dog that guards hell is, <laughs> that's aggressive. And they're really trying to get their message across that it's just really hot. So they're naming these things now. Uh, later on in the story, it talks about what they're trying to do to keep people from dying from the heat wave. Because what, what happens in... Uh, Europe, more so than in the United States, when it gets really hot, is that people die in part because they don't have air conditioning. And of course, giving them air conditioning or helping them buy air conditioning for their houses is not one of the things that, that is proposed because, you know, that's the air conditioning is a, is a no-no too. But there's, you know, obviously the main purpose of this and the branding exercise of naming heat waves now is just to impress upon people that, you know, the idea that global warming, aka climate change, is a real and immediate urgent threat that we need to do something about, you can be sure that we will have a heat wave that is named something like the Gates of Hades or something along those lines here in the United States. If, if not, I mean, this summer, I, it would shock me if we don't get a named heat wave this summer now that the Europeans have done it. Keep track of that. We like to keep track of kind of changing weather terminology here on the Oregon Roundup podcast and how it's indicative of kind of the political stuff that's underlying a lot of things, including how we talk about the weather. All right, finally, now this one, <laughs> I have spent a lot of time laughing about this story since I first read it, I think it was the last weekend. I'm just going to read to you this story from KOIN, again from KOIN. From July 6th, headline, PETA offers rewards for information on stolen chicken truck. PETA, again, being the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Okay, Portland, Oregon. PETA is offering a cash and... Pl 
PETA is offering a cash and plant-based food reward to anyone with details that can help them locate its chicken truck that was stolen in a southeast Portland neighborhood. In late June, a semi-truck transporting hundreds of chickens tipped over while traveling northbound on Interstate 5. While Portland police said that no drivers were harmed and most of the animals survived, dozens of chickens died in the crash. To honor the several chickens who lost their lives, PETA drove its Hell on Wheels truck around the Buffalo Wild Wings and Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers near Pioneer Courthouse Square. The vehicle, which PETA describes as a 2016 Ford E350 Super Duty box truck, features images of live chickens packed into crates while being hauled to a slaughterhouse. It also plays audio of the birds crying and a subliminal message every 10 seconds to urge people to adopt veganism. However, the animal advocacy group said the vehicle was stolen from the Brentwood-Darlington area late on Monday, July 3rd, or early on Tuesday, July 4. And here's the quote from their spokesperson. Quote, the Hell on Wheels truck encourages people to go vegan by showing them the horrific suffering endured, endured by birds destined for slaughter and for it to have vanished is extremely upsetting, PETA Vice President Tracy Ryman said. If you know who took the truck or may, where it may be, PETA wants to hear from you so we can get our life-saving message back on the road. The organization is offering a reward of up to $5,000 for any tips that would lead to the location of the stolen truck. Additionally, tipsters can receive, can receive a one-year supply of vegan chicken. And then it goes into some of the details about the truck. I lost it a few times through this thing when I first went through it. The part about it playing audio of the birds crying and a subliminal message every 10 seconds to urge people to adopt veganism. And then the, the part about them offering a one-year supply of vegan chicken as, as a reward. I'm not sure that's going to incentivize a bunch of people. PETA, I don't know if they try to be kind of tongue-in-cheek, farcical with the stuff that they do. This certainly matches that. It's a bummer that their truck got stolen. That's never okay to steal anything. And hopefully they catch them and they, they get their chicken truck hell, called Hell on Wheels back to troll the streets of Portland and remind people of the terror chickens face as they go to the slaughterhouse. Anyway, I hope you found that funny. I sure did. I want to thank you for listening today. That's all the time we have. If you're not already subscribed to the Oregon Roundup newsletter and podcast, go ahead and go to Oregon Roundup, all one word, dot substack dot com. If you're not a paid subscriber already, feel free to do that. That helps me out. It helps me justify spending more time doing this weird stuff like reading to you stories about a PETA chicken truck that has been stolen, but also doing the research and writing and podcasting on more serious issues affecting Oregon state government and other stuff. Appreciate you listening. Hope you have a good weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.